Well, sorry to have subjected you to such a long passage. It's just that I am looking at three different themes throughout that passage, so it's good to try and get everything in context. Um, otherwise, we can run into problems. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the resurrection, and we thank you for the things like the Apostles' Creed that, uh, Lord, have stood the test of time. And Lord, we thank you that your resurrection has set in place, uh, Lord, our future resurrection, Lord, that is absolutely guaranteed. I do pray, Lord, for each and every one of us, including myself, that will be encouraged today as we look at Christ's resurrection and, that, and how that does uh, impact our own resurrection. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have you heard the saying uh, that there are two guarantees in life, uh, death and taxes? Well, I uh, would argue that and say that there is three things certain in life, uh, death, taxes, and uh, the resurrection. And when I say the resurrection, I mean both Christ's uh, resurrection and our resurrection. Uh, it's all good and well talking about Christ's resurrection, but... It is of no importance if we are not raised from the dead. Now surely we're going to suffer for Christ, which we will. We need to also know what sort of reward we will receive after death. The resurrection of Christ and ours should be preached not just at Easter, but regularly. See, the resurrection is fundamental to our understanding of the gospel message. And without the resurrection, well... We may as well pack up and go home. I might as well get back on the train back down to Mandra. In fact, Paul tells the Christian church uh, in Corinth, if there is no resurrection, their faith is futile and they need to be pitied above all people. As Christians will suffer, there is no doubt about this. Yes, some will suffer more than others and we will suffer in different ways. It's part of our DNA, isn't it? as Christians, but is that it for Christians, we suffer and then we die? Is that our lot in life? Not according to Paul. Paul is certain of our resurrection and it's so important because it gives us a future hope. It helps us in tough times, doesn't it? And it's a guarantee that has been already set in motion by Christ himself. And we needed to be reminded constantly about this future hope. This is why Paul is writing and reminding the Christians in Corinth about Christ's resurrection and their resurrection. See, many of the Corinthians had totally misunderstood what the resurrection fully meant for them. And as a result, they were living ungodly lives. Why did Paul wait until the end of the letter to talk about the resurrection if it was of first importance. I believe it was because he wanted to highlight their ungodly behavior first before pointing out that this behavior was a result of wrong understanding of the resurrection. As Christians, we can be confident that Jesus Christ died and rose from the dead, but at the same time it's possible we can doubt our own resurrection. The Westminster Confession of Faith says that this about the assurance of grace and salvation. The relationship of the infallible assurance to the essence of faith is such that a true believer may wait long and contend with many difficulties before 
he or she experiences it. In other words, you may be a believer but not really experience the fullness of being saved. Well, my hope is by the end of this message you will be absolutely certain and have no doubt that about your own salvation and your own bodily resurrection. I remember years ago when I was doing a CPE, uh, and a CPE, uh, that was at Royal Perth Hospital, a CPE stands for Clinical Pastoral Education Course, which is aimed for people going into ministry. And as a group, we would discuss our conversations with patients and critique how well we had pastorally cared for that patient. And I remember one time, it was a lady chaplain uh, turned to talk about her visit with a patient. And in her talk, she spoke about the patient asking her how she would be, um, sorry, asking her how she could be so confident that there was life after death. And I was a little bit shocked at her reply. She said, well, I'm not sure, but I do hope that there will be life after death and that I've done enough. I did feel sorry for her because she was ignorant of God's power and ignorant of the resurrection of what, we, what happens when we die. She had not understood the certainty of our resurrection and as a consequence of missing the full joy of being a Christian. And this was similar to some of the people in Corinth church that Paul is writing to. Let's have a look at what Paul says in verses 33 to 34. Paul says this, Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought to and stop sinning. For there are some of you who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. Now this is a strong rebuke from Paul. And it doesn't say why or what they are ignorant of. However, we can work it out by looking at the passage as a whole. Verse 12 gives us the answer. If it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Now this is the crux of the matter and the core problem in the Corinthian church. Some of the congregation did not believe that there was a resurrection of the dead and this was leading the rest of the church to believe the same things. And the reason for this is that they were ignorant of God. This was the same for the chaplain in the pastoral care group and many other Christians around today. Now when Paul says they are denying the resurrection of the dead, he's not talking about Christ's resurrection but theirs. In the first 11 verses of this passage, Paul reminds them of the gospel and he explains the gospel in verse 3. What does he say? He says this, he says, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And this is the gospel message in a nutshell. Now Paul's not trying to change their view on Christ's resurrection but reminded them that this is the gospel message that they both agreed on which is of first importance and which they both hold on to verse 11. Paul says whether then it is I or they meaning the other apostles this is what we preach to you and this is what you believed. Now you remember Paul was the one who set up the Corinthian church. He did the church plant over in Corinth. So he would have preached to them regularly. He would have preached to them on the resurrection. But somehow they've forgotten about their own resurrection. And consequently this has resulted in ungodly behavior. 
So both Paul and the Corinthians believe in the gospel which involves Christ being raised from the dead. What does Paul mean when he says in verse 12, you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Well, some of the Corinthians in Corinth church were not denying Christ's resurrection, but they were denying their own bodily resurrection. They were ignorant of God's power and they did not believe that once they died, God would raise their bodies back to life. You see, they believe that the spirit would be some, uh, somehow with God, but that their bodies would remain in the ground. The Corinthians may have been influenced by some of the Greek philosophers who taught that the body and soul was of an equal value and the soul was of a higher importance than the body. And when the death came, the spirit would be freed. The body, uh, sorry, the spirit was freed from the body, a bit like a snake shedding of its skin. The Corinthians could not comprehend our physical body of lesser value than the soul could possibly live in the heavenly realm. They also may have viewed the resurrection in a literal term. That is, that it was like a dead corpse being raised from the dead which would have been repulsive to them. And as a result of their bad doctrine, it was causing them to sin. Verse 33, have a look at what Paul says. Says to some of you, say, well, sorry, verse 33, and this small group, as Paul says, some of you say it was not the whole church was influencing the rest of the church it's a neg- in a negative way. Paul wants to clear up any misunderstanding which could eventually lead them to deny Christ's resurrection. Before I went to Trinity Theological College, if I'm honest, I was ignorant of my own resurrection. When I look at this passage, I can't believe how foolish the Corinthians were. But I was just as foolish, because I had a similar understanding of the resurrection. I imagine when we died, our souls would be floating around in heaven aimlessly, a bit like glad wrap. I did believe in life after death, but did not really have a clear understanding of what that would look like. And to be honest with you, I'd never really heard it being preached on either. Did this mean I wasn't a Christian? No, because I believed in the resurrection of Christ and I did believe in life after death. But I did not fully understand what my own resurrection would look like. Now this is not a lack of faith, but it's just bad theology. And this can lead to all types of problems, which we see was happening in the Corinthian church. This is why Paul is addressing this particular issue and he gives them and as a master class in the subject of the resurrection. Now Paul addresses them at the beginning of the letter and at the end of the letter as brothers and sisters. So their salvation is not at stake. However, a misunderstanding of the resurrection has led to ungodly behavior, and so Paul wants to clear up any confusion so they can live better lives, godlier lives. Now Paul is very clever how he argues this point. Firstly, he talks about their common faith in the gospel, which they both agree on. Once he gets them to agree, he now, hooks, it now he's hooked them in, he uses an hypothetical argument to get them to realize their errors. Let's have a look at what he says from verse 12. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God 
that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul's point is simple. If we're not raised from the dead, then Christ has not been raised, and therefore we are false witnesses to God. We're still sinners, and we need to be the most pitied. You see, Paul's point is if they do believe that Christ has been raised, for them to deny their own resurrection means they have to deny Christ's resurrection. And this applies to us today. If we do not believe in our own resurrection, we may as well go home now. There is no point coming to church because Christ has not been raised and we are lost, completely lost. Our faith is a joke and we should be pitied above all people. Now Paul might be going a bit hard here, but he's trying to get across both to the Corinthians and to us that the resurrection to Christ is so closely connected that you cannot accept one without accepting the other. And that is because of our union with Christ. We are united to Christ. You are united to Christ right now. The Holy Spirit lives in you, lives in me. That means that we are united to Christ. And that is the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead. Think about it. The same powerful Holy Spirit that raised Christ from the dead. So we can be certain of our own resurrection because as we read on, Paul says in verse 20, but Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Paul uses the present tense here, meaning Christ has been raised and continues to be raised. And then he uses an illustration that they would be very familiar with. First fruits points to a sheaf of the harvest which was brought to the temple and offered to God. Now first fruits imply further fruits. Christ was not the first human to be raised from the dead because he himself raised people from the dead, such as Lazarus. However, they would die again. But Christ's resurrection was permanent and continues today. And Jesus is the first to be raised in his glorified body, which is the guarantee that we will also be raised, because he is a deposit guaranteeing life after death, and that death has been swallowed up. Because remember, death is to do with sin. If we didn't sin, we wouldn't die. Christ has paid the penalty for that. Christ is the first of the new creation, and therefore he has set in motion the irreversible resurrection of all believers. However, our re resurrection won't happen until Christ returns. Christ is now reigning and ruling this world, and every enemy he will conquer, and death is the last enemy. Again, we can't separate sin from death. Adam brought sin into the world and death followed. If Adam had not sinned, death would not have come into this world. Adam and Eve would still be alive. However, Adam did sin and so death still reigns. But even death will be conquered by Christ and we will enjoy eternity with God forever and ever. Christ has already set in motion the victory of death by his own resurrection and therefore guaranteed final victory over death and sin and Satan himself. If we deny our own resurrection, why did Christ die then? 
died for nothing, really. He died in vain. We're still in our sins and no different to unbelievers, but that's not true. He did die and he did rise from the dead. And we can be confident that on the last day we will also conquer death and be given our new resurrected bodies that will last forever and ever. Have a look at what it says in verse 24. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last entity to be destroyed is death. The kingdom of God has been established when Christ came but will not be fully realized till he returns. See, at present we're in a spiritual war and Satan is on a tight leash trying to do or cause as much havoc as possible in the world and trying to mislead us just as he's mis misled the Corinthian church. However, we can be confident that Christ has overcome death, defeated Satan, has been raised from the dead and is at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. Yes, there will still be evil in this world, but this is temporal, and one day, on that last day, it will be all dealt with once and for all. It's a bit like this. It's a bit like World War II, where the armed forces invaded Normandy, and within a few weeks it was clear that they had won the battle. This was known as D-Day. But it was months later when the war against Germany was fully realized, and this was known as VE Day. D-Day re represents Jesus' victory over death and V-E-Day represents the final victory which will be when we are glorified with Christ in our new bodies. Yes, the victory is certain but there's still all the cleaning up to do. But the final victory will be fully realized when Christ returns. Most people believe in good and bad, don't they? You watch most of these modern movies, good always wins. So why is it so hard to believe that God will eventually wipe out all sin and death and God can be all in all? And we will be part of that new creation. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is the same spirit that lives in us and will raise us from the dead, Ephesians 1.13. The second thing is what will it look like? What will our resurrected bodies look like? Again, I'll use uh, Paul's argument and elaborate on it. Paul's already convinced the Corinthians in their wrong understanding of the resurrection and that the dead will be raised. Now he deals with the next question by asking a rhetorical question. Verse 35. But someone will ask, how will the dead be raised? With what kind of body will they come? Paul uses rhetoric. That is, he asks a question that he expects the Corinthians to ask. So he can then answer it. Paul starts by using an example of a seed. Is there any gardeners here today? Any green fingers? Okay. You must have planted a few seeds, Jason, yeah? Did they jump around in your hands? No. Did they move around at all? Only because of you. Yeah, okay. Well, most of you must have seen a seed at one point in your life and the seeds move around. No, they're dead, aren't they? They're just dead. It's simply lifeless. But as soon as you plant that seed and start watering it over a period of time, it can turn into a beautiful flower. So Paul's point is simply this. The seed is a metaphor for our dead bodies that will go into the ground lifeless. But God will raise them up on the last day with a beautiful glorified body to fit for heaven. 
the Corinthians had underestimated the power of God and what he's capable of doing. If, if God can speak this creation into being, can he not do a recreation in us? Yes, I agree that when our bodies go into the ground, they will die, they'll comp decompose and go back to the earth unless you get cremated. But does that limit God's power to do a recreation in that same body? Of course not. There is nothing impossible with God. See, we have to remember that we're dealing with an awesome, infinite, all-knowing, all-wise, and all-powerful God who can do anything. I mean, if God can make a donkey talk, a snake talk, walk on water, make a big fish swallow Jonah for three days, surely he can re-resurrect a body. Now, how do we know we will have a bodily resurrection? The simple answer is we need to look at Jesus as the perfect example. Jesus' resurrection involved his own body. He wasn't a ghost, as some Gnostics thought. See, Gnosticism was a philosophy that body, the body was ultimately bad, but the soul was good. So Jesus could not have come back in his body form. But Paul reminds the Corinthians in verse 5 to 8, what does he say? He says, Jesus appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 other brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and at last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnorm uh, abnormally born. So Jesus wasn't a ghost. He spent 40 days on earth after his resurrection, spending time with his disciples and the wider community. It's not a fable story. It's not a mystery. It's history. Christ came back. 40 days appeared. 500 people at once. Jesus also appeared to Mary, his mother, and Mary Magdalene, and many others. Have a look at what it says in John chapter 20, verses 24 to 27. That's John chapter 20, if you want to follow along, verses 24. Now, Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were and put my hands into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood amongst them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your fingers here, see my hands, reach out your hands, and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Does Jesus look like a ghost here? Not at all. He tells Thomas to touch him where the scars were. Jesus is in his bodily resurrection. However, he's also in his glorified body. I don't know if you noticed in the passage that I've just read, but Jesus stood amongst them even though the doors were locked. How did he do that? Somehow Jesus entered the room and the doors were locked. I'm not sure how he did it, but he was in his glorified body, so I would imagine he just walked straight through. We don't know, do we? But we, all we know is our glorified bodies are going to last forever and they're going to be somehow different to our bodies that we have now. We know that Jesus ate fish. He probably didn't have to eat fish, but he ate fish to show that he had a human body. 
He was with his disciples. So there's no doubt that Jesus' resurrection was a bodily one. Now when Jesus' body was raised from the dead, this was the same body that Jesus had before he died. How do I know this? Well, when Mary Magdalene came to the tomb, there was no body there. Why was there no body there? Because Jesus had risen. Jesus must have risen with the same earthly body he had before. It's not like they just buried Jesus in the ground and then Jesus appears in a brand new body. If there was no body in the tomb, then we can be certain that this same body has been raised from the dead. However, it's been changed from an earthly body to a heavenly body. That is why Mary Magdalene did not recognize Jesus straight away. When she saw him, she thought he was the gardener until he spoke to her because he was in his glorified body. See, Paul tells in verse 33 that the perishable, meaning our earthly bodies, must clothe itself with the imperishable. Meaning our heavenly bodies, in a nutshell, our earthly bodies will not be done away with, but they will be given heavenly qualities, which Paul describes as garments. So there'll be some continuity between our old bodies and our resurrected bodies. And this supports what he tells us in 1 Thessalonians 2.19, where Paul tells us that we will recognize one another in heaven. Just like the seed flower illustration shows that there is continuity between the seed and the flower that comes from that seed. So it will be with the same with our earthly bodies that represent that seed and our heavenly bodies that represent the flower. Now I know this is quite heavy stuff, but it's important that we understand that there will not be, we won't be just aimless spirits floating about like Gladrap at the resurrection, but we'll have real heavenly bodies just like Jesus with a real purpose, and that is to worship and glorify God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. This new body will be made complete. So for those who are missing limbs, there isn't anyone, I, don't, I can't see anyone missing limbs or any other parts, they can be confident that they will not be missing any of the body parts in heaven. I had a friend called Bob, uh, he's not with us anymore, lovely Christian bloke, uh, but he had no legs. Uh, he still got around. Um, he used to uh, have one of these little cars with the old brakes on the handle, so he, he got around. Um, Quick funny story, um, uh, he did a mission trip to China and uh, when he got to China he was delivering Bibles, you know, for the persecuted, but they were illegal Bibles and uh, as he was going through the airport he got the security guy to help him with his uh, suitcases, <laughs> believe it or not. <laughs> but when we get to heaven guys, seriously, there'll be not people, uh, there won't be people with walking sticks or wheelchairs, there'll be no need for hospitals. We'll be in our glorified bodies that will never get sick or wear out, made perfect and complete. In fact, the only body, or the only body in heaven that will have scars on it is Jesus. He's the only body that will show hands, scars on his hand and scar on his side, and that will be a reminder to us of what he did for us. And this should be a great encouragement for every Christian here today. How many of us ever take a second think, uh, uh, a second thought to think about our future hope as regards our new resurrected bodies? We often talk about the risen Lord, but it's still important to remind ourselves of our own salvation and what that will look like. 
we can never fully understand how wonderful it will be in our heavenly bodies, but what we can be sure of is that it will be much better than this life. The third point, which really is the application of the passage, is how should our own resurrection affect the way we live? Well, not like the Corinthian church. The Corinthians had got complacent in their godly living because they had a wrong understanding of the resurrection. Paul tells them in verse 34, come back to your senses and stop sinning. Basically, sober up because your thinking is wrong. There's a saying which goes like this, a wrong understanding of God will inevitably result in bad behavior. If we grow cold and forget about the glorious hope in our resurrection, we will certainly grow weary in our faith, which will have a knock-on effect in our godly living. We've been, we need to be reminded of our future hope in the resurrection that has been grounded in Christ and is absolute certain because Christ has risen so we can be bold in how we live and how we tell others about this gospel message. See, if our view of God is small, then our response to others will be small. If we do not continue to look to the future, we can easily get caught up with the present and forget what we have in store waiting for us at the end. We need to live in light of God's future promises. It says in uh, verse 30 to 34, And as far as us, we do, we do, we endanger ourselves every hour. I face death every day, yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be misled, bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning, for there are some of you who are ignorant of God. I say this to shame you. Here we see a contrast between Paul's life and the Corinthians' life. Paul is risking the possibility of death each day for the sake of the gospel. I don't know if you're familiar with Paul's life, but he was shipwrecked, he was flogged, he was persecuted, he went through much hardship. And the reason he could get through these life difficulties of persecution was because he was certain of his own resurrection. Remember what Paul says? He says, to live is Christ but to die is gain. For him, to die was much better than to live, but he said, but I live for you, it, meaning the church. They needed Paul there. On the other end of the spectrum were the way in which the Corinthian church was living. They were living their life to the full. They didn't want to miss out on life's pleasures because they believed that was, uh, believed that was, because they believed that was, it when you die, that was it. There was there was no more. They wanted to make the most of life right here and now because they couldn't see a life after death. Because they didn't believe in life after death. Their main cut focus on life was to get the most out of life while you can. I saw a couple of sayings on the on the internet. Live the life you've dreamed. You only live once. The best way to prepare for death is to live life to its fullest. We should be thinking like this as Christians. Our motivation for living a good life is our reward in heaven, which is eternal life. How can you compare eternity with life as to offer you right now? I mean, you might be lucky. You might be able to live to about 80 years, maybe 90 years of age, but will you compare that to eternity with God forever and ever? You can't compare, can you? 
See, if Christ has died and paid the price in full for our sins, we have now been freed from the bondage of sin and its grip on us. We also must remember that we are born again. We are united to Christ. So if we are bringing, so if we are sinning, in some sense, we're bringing Christ into disrepute. And I don't know if you remember, but that passage in Corinthians, he's already told the Corinthians about it, their union in Christ and why they shouldn't sin. Um, if you go back to chapter 6, I've nearly finished, so just bear with me. What time is it? You've got a couple more minutes. But this is quite important. It's, it's important to realize your union with Christ. And what I mean by union is you're joined with Christ. Okay? That's why you can't have a resurrection. Christ can't be resurrected and you not be, because you are united to Christ by the Holy Spirit, yeah? Now, I don't know if Jason's, I'm sure he's told you this, but when you read a part of the Bible, you need to read the whole context. If you take something out of context, you can make it say whatever you like. So you can say, oh, there's no God. Say that in the Bible, there's no God. You have to read the whole context to get the full understanding. If you go to chapter 6 of Corinthians and look at verse 19, it says this, says, Do you not know that your bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, in whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. I've heard this preached on many a time, and people say, your body is a holy temple. You should not smoke. You should not drink. It's got nothing to do with smoking. I'm not saying you shouldn't smoke, and I'm, su I'm sure there's few Christians that do smoke, but it's not that good for you, and I'm sure... It doesn't mean you can't drink. You can have a drink in moderation. I'm sure you can. I mean, Jesus had a glass of wine. But that's not what it's saying. Why do I know that? Well, go, go, to ver go back to verse 13 and have a look what it says with me. It says, this is a, the same chapter. You say food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power power god raised the lord from the dead and he will raise us also get that he's already mentioned the resurrection do you not know that your bodies are members of christ himself shall i then take the member of christ and unite them with a prostitute never do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is the one with her in body for it is said the two will become one flesh but whoever is united with the lord is one with him in spirit So it's nothing to do with smoking. It's to do with someone sleeping with a prostitute. And he's saying, no, you can't do that. Because when you sleep with a prostitute, you're, you're uniting Christ in that sense. You're bringing it into disrepute. But you see, the church had really gone downhill. I don't even know about the Corinthian church. It was dysfunctional. It had got division in it. There was incest. There was lawsuits amongst one another. There was prostitution. There was bad conduct at the Lord's Supper. It was in a really bad way. Because they thought they could just live it up. They thought the body was inherently evil, so when it goes to the ground, that'll be, it'll be done with. They didn't really have any focus on that future resurrection and the future hope, that future salvation that we look forward to. And this has caused them to live for today, for tomorrow we may die. We're not to think like that. So let's go back to verse 15, uh, chapter 15, verse 2. Let's stand firm, or we have believed in vain. That's what Paul wanted, to stand firm in the gospel. If anybody asks you the gospel, it's a very simple message, isn't it? Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus rose again. 
That's it. That is the gospel message. We're going to be doing the Lord's Supper, or Jason will be doing the Lord's Supper in a few minutes. And that's a reminder of... the. It's a, it's a visible gospel, isn't it? It's about Jesus' death, but it's also about his resurrection and his return. That's why we take communion. We need to be reminded of that each, each week or each month when we do communion. So, brothers and sisters, let me just conclude. So we just, uh, so we've got a full understanding of what happens when we die. When we die, our bodies go into the ground. That's true. Our soul goes immediately to be with Jesus. Okay, That's why Jesus could say to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. Not, not yesterday, not tomorrow, but today you'll be with me. So the minute you draw your last breath, you'll be with Jesus instantly. Okay. And when Christ returns, our body and souls will be reunited. Now, this is not just believers, brothers and sisters. This is non-believers as well. They will be in a resurrected body, just like ours. But they will not be spending time in heaven forever and ever. They will be departed from God. And it's not like when your body goes in the ground, it's just going to be asleep and that'll be it. You won't know anything. You know, it, your bodies won't become dormant. Your soul will go to be Christ. You won't just become a nothingness either or alienation or anything like that. You'll be immediately with Christ. And when Christ comes to judge, our bodies, spirits will join together, we'll be united as one and we'll live on earth. It'll be a recreation just like our body will be a recreation and we'll live forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we can't understand the fullness of the resurrection. We know that, Lord, the resurrection is because we know that Christ was raised from the dead. He spent time with the disciples. He spent time with the apostles. He, he was witnessed by 500 people at the same time, Lord. We know this is a historical event. And yet, Lord, we can doubt at times and we ask for forgiveness when we do. We just pray, Lord God, that you can continue to remind us of this life after death so that when we go through adversity in this life we can we can always be reminded that this is not our lot in life lord that we have a wonderful hope into an eternal future with you lord uh, we're just pilgrims on this earth for a short time lord help us when we go through suffering and difficult times to be reminded of the resurrection of our lord jesus christ as the first fruits and we ask all of this in jesus name amen